All right, well, well while the popcorn's being distributed and the, uh, the uh, offering is being taken, my name's Kevin, and uh, I'm going to teach today. This is a uh, second part of a two-part series that we began last week. Last week, you might remember, was Easter Sunday, and uh, we talked about what is it, what does the outward journey have to do with Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, and uh, we're going to continue that today with maybe a slightly different focus, but I will recap a little bit. So when I say outward journey, what I mean is the process whereby those of us who are followers of Jesus, right, share our experience of following Jesus, what the Bible calls the good news, with those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Okay, It's that process where we share what we know, what we experience with those who have not yet experienced, those who do not yet know what it means to follow Jesus. That's the outward journey. I say it's a journey or a process because it's not like we're born instantly with that ability to do it. And as we learn, right, as we grow, we have much more that is real to us that we have to share, right? We have experiences to share. We have things that we've seen and and observed and done. And so those are all part of that, that sharing experience. We talked about last week, I think I turned this on, No, I didn't turn it on. Give it a second here. If you click to the next one, this will catch up with me in a minute. Talked about the questions of life. You know, if you if you just stop for a minute and think about life, and you're a little bit thoughtful, you might go, well, what is this life about? It's sort of one of the unique things about human beings is that we ask that question. We have the ability to sort of see ourselves from the outside and look and say, you know, what is life about? And so I was thinking about different questions that, that maybe we wrestle with. One is, what's the meaning of life? Or why am I here? You know, why am I on this planet? Is this life all there is? Is just what I experience is traffic and McDonald's and TV commercials and Super Bowl Sunday? Is this all there is or is there something more to life? And then what happens when I die, when life is over? And if, if you've lived a little bit, you've probably lost somebody. You know, what, what has happened to that somebody? Where did they go? Where are they after they die? Is there a God? It's a good question to ask. And what is God like if there is a God? And can he be known? And do I matter if there is a God, if there's somebody that made this world that we look at? You know, if you ever ever lie on your back at night and stare at the stars and then just think that they just go on forever, never end. If you shot an arrow up there, it would just keep going. It would never stop. It doesn't like ever turn around and come back around. It just keeps going, infinite. So do I matter to a God that created that kind of a universe? And if God is good, if there's a sense that God is good, well, maybe I don't measure up. So what do I do about the things in my own life that wouldn't measure up to what God expects of people? So last week we talked about all these questions. And what I want to say is that thoughtful people all over the world wrestle with these questions. Now, we talked about you could just ignore the questions. You could just say, I'm just going to live life and I'm going to, I'm going to dodge those questions. But I think sooner or later you're going to run into an experience in life that, that shakes you and you're going to wonder some of these questions and what might the answers be. So we talked about some of the different belief systems that people have. Now, the majority of the people in the world statistically believe that God is at least a part of the answer to the questions of life. 
Maybe only 15% of the people in the world would, would say that they're just non-religious, don't have any kind of a conception of God or care about God or believe that God is, is, uh, exists or is relevant. But for the other 85%, and that's pretty much a very large majority, what I'll call the religious types, right? Most everybody would acknowledge that they don't quite measure up to what their conception is of God. That there's something about their life, something about the way they live, the things they've done, that doesn't quite measure up. And so there's a lot of different ways that people have uh, developed to try to deal with that issue. So we talked about some of the different approaches that are taken by Hindus, by Muslims, by Buddhists. And, uh, you know, right there is that's three of the four major world religions, Christianity being the fourth and, and really numerically the largest. But that's different ways in which people have wrestled with that problem of, you know, I don't quite measure up. Each of these approaches the approach of the Hindu or the Muslim or the Buddhist, puts the burden of, of not, not measuring up on the individual to figure out how they're going to deal with it. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. So in contrast to these other world religions, you know, where the devotee, he's trying to find that right relationship with God. He's trying to make himself right with reality as he knows it. Jesus comes to us instead as God's gift to us, right? It's not us doing something to get ourselves in a right relationship with God. It's God sending Jesus to us to get us in a right relationship with him. And Jesus explained his mission in life as simply seeking and saving those who are lost. So he uses the word lost. It's a significant word. It's one that you should think about. It's one that you might find helpful when you run into people in life that are a pain in the neck or that are a problem, or that irritate you, is just think lost. Lostness has all kinds of forms, okay? And it's, it's a better word, and it's a less judgmental word than some other ways that you might think about that person. Jerk, etc. <laughs> so unlike Hinduism, or Islam, or Buddhism, Jesus comes to us from God seeking to save us from our own lostness. You know, the Hindu... He looks for ways in life to earn forgiveness through acts of personal holiness or piety and sacrifice. I mean, if you go to India, I've been to India now eight times, and if you go near the Hindu temples, you'll see all of these little candle setups and things where people are making puja. They're making sacrifices to the gods to appease the gods and to hopefully curry some favor from the gods. He seeks to live out his karma, you know, his sort of fate in life, which comes from the previous life, and, and he seeks to, seeks to live out his karma in this life in hopes that the next life is going to be a better one. And then as that, that wheel of incarnation turns, he hopes that one day he's going to be able to transcend this life altogether. For the Muslim, Allah alone controls life and death. There's no Muslim, even the best among them, that can ever be certain that he's ever done enough good things in this life to overcome his own shortcomings and weaknesses. So he practices the five pillars of Islam. The Buddhist seeks to escape the cycle of suffering and rebirth by living a life of right thinking and right actions. So I want to be clear about this. I'm not criticizing any of these approaches, right? They're sincere approaches that people take, and you can just think about other faiths, think about other belief systems that people have, even non-religious people. There is a rationale to what they do and why they do what they do. It has some kind of a logical sense to it that we're trying, we're trying to put ourselves in a place where we're okay. And there are devout followers in every belief system. 
And we should always respect that devoutness and that desire on the part of human beings to understand their world and to connect with God. But to all of these sincere but pretty different ways of answering the questions of life, we have Jesus' own words about himself. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He says he's the way to God, the Father. He's the life. He's the truth about God, and he's the life that is found in God. And no one can come to the Father except through him. And like I said last week, here we get to kind of a stumbling point for a lot of people about Christianity. Christianity is criticized as it's just too narrow, it's too exclusive, because you can only go in through Jesus. This is the one way. And it takes us to what was the main point I wanted to get across last week, which is what it really comes down to is whether or not people need a Savior or whether they can save themselves. Okay? I'll say that again. What it really comes down to is whether people need a Savior or they're able to save themselves. Because if you can save yourself, if you can be good, if you can make the right sacrifices, if you can think the right way, if you can act the right way, if you can somehow get yourself in a position where God has to respond to you because of who you are and what you've done, then you don't need a Savior. And that's the question. Do you need a Savior or not? Every one of the belief systems that we talked about, it depends on the effort of the individual, either to overcome your karma or, in the case of Islam, to tip the scales in your favor so that you can enter paradise or to escape the cycle of rebirth and to attain nirvana if you're a Buddhist. And in contrast to all of these self-saving approaches, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. Boy, sometimes it's really sensitive and sometimes it's not cooperative. So these were the, this was kind of the central text of what we looked at last week, these four verses in John 16. Like I said, they're, I find them to be pretty amazing and important scriptures to, to know and get familiar with, even to memorize. You know, they not only define lostness, which is unbelief in Jesus, right, but they make it clear how lostness is overcome. And we see when we read this, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convince the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin, this lostness, is unbelief in me. This is Jesus speaking. And righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more. And judgment will come because the prince of this world has already been judged. So we see that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin, to make them aware of their need for a Savior. The Holy Spirit does this by producing a deep sense of personal guilt, in particular guilt over rejecting Jesus as God's chosen way of rescuing us from our sins. He convicts people of sin, which is unbelief in Jesus, kind of the fundamental sin. There's other sins, obviously. And of righteousness that's now available. I said last week, you know, there's a place for Jesus in Hinduism. If you go to India, you look around, you'll see pictures and statues of Jesus You'll see statues of Jesus with kind of other strange things attached and connected. So he's, he sort of fits into the pantheon of gods. Uh, in Islam, Jesus is a revered figure. So he has a place in Islam as well. And he's 
completely compatible with Buddhism, right? He's one of the great teachers of the world. There's really not a problem with Jesus and Buddhism. But in none of these other ways of looking at Jesus is he the way to righteousness, the way that God has appointed to righteousness. But righteousness is now available to humankind because Jesus has gone to the Father. It's available because his blood was poured out on the cross. It's available because he offered his sinless life as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for the sins of all people for all time. It's not our job to convince people that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Hopefully that's a little bit of relief. It's really hard to convince somebody of their sin. If you've ever sat down and had a conversation with somebody, it pretty quickly becomes a conversation about, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and you're not, you know, and who are you to say, and this and that, right? But the, the way God has designed things is it's the Spirit of God that puts his finger on the person's heart and convicts them of sin. It's not our job to do it. But he uses us, right? He needs the followers of Jesus, our availability and the words and deeds that we do to do that convicting and convincing. He's not able to do it apart from us. And then finally last week we talked about, you know, there's the great majority of people in the world for whom Jesus is not the Savior. Probably, you know, five of the seven billion people on the planet. Now, you could say, well, maybe we're just fortunate enough that we've been able to come to know Jesus. Isn't that enough, right? Isn't it enough just to have met Jesus and decided to follow him and then do our best to be a good follower of his? Isn't that sufficient? What does he expect me to do about the overwhelming numbers of people in the world that don't see Jesus as the Savior? They see him as anything but the Savior. And so we're getting to kind of what I really want to talk about this week in part two of the resurrect, of Resurrection Sunday and the Outward Journey. And I, I showed this slide last week. It's got a quote in there from Pastor Clara. It's a, a word that she received from the Holy Spirit recently, speaking to the way that she sees people as she moves through life. This person was created in my image, and I do not want them to spend eternity apart from me. You know, as we experience life, as you go out and about in the world, don't you run into all kinds of people? I mean, there's just people with every kind of idea about things. I mean, if you're not running into people with different ideas about things, you might be running in a pretty small circle, and it's maybe something to look at there. But I know for me that as I've gone around, it's just you run into all kinds of people with all kinds of ideas about the way things are. And the question really is, what's my responsibility to them? As a follower of Jesus, what is my responsibility to them? And I'm going to mix in a couple of other problems uh, into that mix. They got that one question, what's my responsibility? But then I've got a couple of things that I find to be a little bit difficult about that topic. And before we continue, I'd like to pray. So, Father, I'm so grateful that you've given us the Bible, the word, the revelation from you about who you are and what you're like and about Jesus and how you've sent him to us to be the one that allows us to come home to you. And, Lord, you accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The sign of that was his resurrection and his ascension to heaven where he sits at your right hand. And you sent the Holy Spirit to us, the promised Holy Spirit, so that we would not be as orphans, but that we would have your living presence with us. And so right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take the words that I share and speak through them 
whatever it is that you want to make clear to us today, that you would empower these words and that you would uh, empower all of our hearts to receive the words and to understand what they mean. Lord, we need revelation from you and we need understanding from you, and I pray that you would bring that to us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, here's one of my two problems. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in this uh, study on the good and beautiful life. And as you get to the end of the sermon, Jesus makes this kind of startling pronouncement about the way life typically goes. He tells those who are listening to him, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So that's the warning. That's kind of what he says, right? He's saying go through the narrow road. But, you know, at the same time, it just seems like most people don't go on the narrow road. They take the broad road, right, the busy, bustling highway because it's easier. But unfortunately, that road leads to destruction. So I was thinking about this text when I was preparing for this talk. And I'm going to say it suggests it seems to suggest kind of a certain futility to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations because most people don't go on the narrow road. So what's the point? You know, the odds are clearly stacked against us. Might we be tempted to complacency? And that takes me to problem number two. I don't have answers to these problems, by the way. I just have problems. Just a few chapters after the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So Jesus is telling us very plainly that there's a harvest and it's ready. It's ripe, just waiting to be gathered in. He has a heart that's full of compassion as he looks at people. Right? He sees their lostness. They're so confused and helpless, like sheep who have no shepherd. They fall prey to every predator looking to take advantage of their vulnerable state. There's not a problem here with a narrow gate or a narrow road, right? Here the problem's different. Jesus is saying, hey, this is a great harvest. It's ready. But what's lacking is people who are willing to go into the harvest fields. Now, I'm going to tell you, every time I read this, I am stopped in my tracks by that. I think we think completely the other way around. The problem is people just don't really want to follow Jesus. But Jesus tells us it's not the lack of people who are willing to follow him, who would be willing to follow him if they met him, if they truly encountered Jesus. It's a lack of people who are in the fields working. So he tells his followers, pray. Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest to send more workers into the fields. So it's not exactly a solution to the problem. It's a question. Are you ready? Are you willing to answer the call? Or is that for somebody else? Well, 
Okay, which brings us to the text for the day. Remember, we're considering the significance of Resurrection Sunday on the outward journey. And uh, this is a, a text from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 23. It's a prayer that Paul prays for the church. And what I want to say is that in these seven verses, we will find some amazing resources available to us who follow Jesus and seek to make him known in a world that's in desperate need of knowing him. I'll go ahead and read it. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head, to be head over everything, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So there's... Four main ideas that I want to get across today from this passage that speak to the outward journey and the significance of Resurrection Sunday. Those four things are spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know God, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know hope, that we would understand that resurrection power is available to us who believe, and to know that all authority has been given to Jesus for the church, his body. We're going to go through each of these four individually. First, maybe second, there's the first one. So the process of following Jesus is one of continual learning and growing to know God more and more. We read, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So we have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to teach us all things. Now, this is something that just doesn't automatically happen. It's something we need to seek. It's something we need to pray for. It's something we need to be aware of. We need to be seeking to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in us so that we can know God and know him better and better with every passing day. It's part of that journey, right? It's part of that process. Do you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in you? If you're wondering, then I would suggest it's something that we need to seek, right? It's we need to seek understanding and seek to receive. But it's very clear that, that it's what God wants to give us. And by the Spirit's work in your life, are you coming to know God better and better? Because if we're going to be capable laborers in God's harvest fields, we need to know God and we need to be completely surrendered to him. We can't be half-hearted about it. It doesn't work. Second point, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So that's Paul praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And did you know that your heart has eyes? What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us, illuminating, right, or shining light or bringing light into our hearts and minds so that we can fully grasp the truth. Why does Paul pray for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened? So that we can know hope. We can know the hope to which we've been called. And it's a great hope, right? What is this, this hope? The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. So when I think of hope, the passage that I always immediately go to is Revelation 21. It paints that picture of the great hope that we have in God, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What it says is, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. This is one you should be familiar with, right? Just know to go there and just be refreshed with the promise of what we have in God. It speaks to our everlasting, unending, forever, infinite, never-ending, put your own adjective in there, future with God and with his great family in perfection, with no more tears and no more sorrows and no more sickness and no more pain and no more dying. And it speaks to the restoration of all things, of all things being made new. I'd like all things to be made new. And the thing is that with the resurrection of Jesus, the restoration of all things has already begun. The followers of Jesus are declared new creations in Christ. So it's a future hope, right? It's what we look forward to when this life ends. But it's not only a future hope. It's also a hope for today. It's a hope for now and for all the days that were granted on this earth. And we need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened so that we know this hope. Through and through, without a doubt. Because when we have this hope in us, nothing's going to shake us. Nothing that comes our way in this life is going to rattle us when we have that hope firmly in us. And that's why it's important that we have it. And it's why it's important that we have it so that we can share that same hope with others. I can't think of the passage now, but it says, always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that's in you. Right? It doesn't say for the knowledge that's in you. It doesn't say for the credo that's in you. It says for the hope. Because that hope kind of undergirds your whole life and gives you ability to face whatever life throws at you without being shaken, without being undone. Okay, third one. So our hearts are getting enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and as that's happening, we come to further realize that the very power 
that raised Jesus from the dead is available for us who believe. That's what it says. I didn't make it up. Now, it's, it's one worth thinking about. What does it mean? What does it mean that resurrection power is available for us who believe? But I would say, you know, couldn't we all use a little resurrection power in our life? So what exactly it means, it's something that we need to pursue, and we need to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance, his wisdom and revelation, so that we understand what does it mean that the very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available for us who believe. It's a promise. The question is, are we going to believe it, and are we going to receive it? So if you just, that's Ephesians 1 that we're looking at. If you just read a few verses ahead in Ephesians 2, verse 6, you read this. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So not only did God exert his mighty power to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, but he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Because we're united with Christ. You understand what that means? Do you want to know what it means? Are you willing to seek it? Pursue it? Seek the Spirit to understand what does it mean? That I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? And then to the fourth point, and what I think is really the climax of the text, we read that God's placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be the head over everything. Why? For the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here we have what I'm going to say is just a continuation of more amazing words, right? And the thing about amazing words, and you come across a lot of amazing words in the Bible, is they always present a challenge to us. Do we just dismiss them as amazing words? Don't know what they mean. Couldn't find, I can't relate. Doesn't seem to have any relevancy to me. So we just dismiss them. Or do we take those amazing words and we say, God said it, and he's giving it to us for a reason, and I just need to be willing to hang with him and have him explain it to me. Because he promises to do that. He promises to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can understand. So those who are followers of Jesus are called the church, his body, and it's clear that Jesus is the head. He's the head over everything, including the church. But the church made up of his people is his body. Because it's, we're the body of Christ, the fullness of him. And what does that mean? So the body of Jesus means hands, feet, arms, legs, back, his heart, right? The church, which is comprised of all the people who call themselves followers of Jesus, what it's saying here is this, we are the physical presence of Jesus in the world. He's in heaven. He's been exalted. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven's most holy place. And we are his physical presence on earth. Well, it's awesome. It's a little intimidating. I'm 
sometimes going to cooperate, sometimes not. So I came across this verse in, in uh, 1 John, sort of saying the same thing but put a little bit different way. It says, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. The process of living in God, of of growing to know him more and more through his spirit of wisdom and revelation causes our love to grow more perfect, more pure, more sacrificial, more unconditional. It's more like Jesus. And as this happens in us, we no longer have any reason to be afraid about the day of judgment. I think perfect love casts out all fear. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect and we grow in confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Do you hear that? We live like Jesus here in this world. So why might the followers of Jesus not be able to face him with confidence on the day of judgment? I I think the text would answer it this way. If in following Jesus, our love did not grow more perfect, and we failed to live like Jesus here in this world, then we would have some confidence issues when we had to face him. Now, if there's one thing that this world needs, and if you just look across the world, if you look at the news at all, you see how broken the world is. It needs Jesus. It needs to encounter the living Jesus. And the way God has appointed for that to happen is through us, through those who follow him. He's not doing it by radiography or by x-rays or by osmosis. Right? It's not some magical process. He's doing it through his redeemed people. That's you, and that's me. You're thinking, well, that's a ridiculous plan. (laughs) But it isn't really. He's made everything available that we need to be capable representatives of Jesus in the world. He's given us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, right, so that we can know him. He's enlightened the eyes of our heart so that we can know hope and have confidence and be absolutely certain who we are and where we're going. He's made this power available to us that raised Jesus from the dead. And we have this authority that Jesus has over all things, which is for us. So let me ask you, what is it that we actually lack? Confidence, probably. (laughs) Experience, maybe. And yet, there is that possibility of not being confident on the day of judgment, of somehow missing what he intended for us during our days on earth. You know, to the very first people that Jesus met when he began his ministry, he said, come, follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. And at the very end of Jesus' life, before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers, go, and all authority has been given to me, right? It's that same idea of Jesus has this authority. It's been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus, teaching them everything that I've taught you. 
That call to introduce people to Jesus, it's from the beginning of his ministry to the end, and it's for the, it's for the entire church. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, there's evangelists who are gifted to do that kind of thing, and it's true. There are people that have a special gift of evangelism. But what I would say is that all of us who are followers of Jesus have this responsibility for the people that God brings into our sphere of influence. If you're going to wait for the evangelist to show up, there's a good chance that nothing's going to happen. So my question this morning is, who are the precious lost ones that God's placed in our midst and laid on our hearts to carry in prayer and in words and in deeds? And I want to say that however inadequate we may feel, it's really not a problem for God to give us all the resources and abilities that we need. Okay? really comes down to our own choice, our willingness to be used by God. You know, just as an aside, it's a lot easier to sit there than it is to be here. You know, I think about that every time the Sunday morning comes and I'm supposed to speak, I'm thinking, what in the world did I say yes for, right? I should have said, no, no, it's all right. You know, but I decided I would be willing to to go for it. And it's certainly a learning experience for me. Hopefully there's some learning that's happening for you. You know, but it takes a choice, right? It takes a decision that I'm going to do something and not just kind of going with the flow. And what I would say is there's, there's some things that are necessary on our side if we're really going to be able to be used by God. And the first one I would say is that we, we ourselves need to be thoroughly converted people, right? Completely surrendered to God. We can't be half-hearted about Him. And we have to have a love for lost people, right? A desire to see people know him we need to have a working knowledge of the bible right this thing right here got to spend time in it and read it kind of mull it over and ask that spirit of wisdom and revelation to explain it to us because it's sometimes a little tricky and we need to pray much right we need to pray that the spirit leads us to the right people by right i mean the ones that god is working with now and that we would know what we're supposed to say so that we're not blundering. And that the Spirit would be speaking through us with power because it's the Spirit of God that convicts people of sin and of righteousness and of the coming judgment. It's not our clever arguments. So, closing, I'm going to say Resurrection Sunday pretty much has everything to do with the outward journey. right? Because of the resurrection, righteousness is now available to anyone who wants it. And the way back home to God is open wide. And my hope is that we, that is our little part of the body of Christ, will catch the vision of what he's accomplished and what he now desires to do in us and through us. I'd love to see our little fellowship grow. I think we have room for more. And wouldn't it be great to see that growth come from people who are coming to know Jesus, who are deciding that, wow, he is God's gift to us. He's the one that's worth following. He's the one that's worth devoting our lives to. Vineyard Church of San Antonio, it's a relationship-based church. We welcome anybody who desires a church family with whom to share this great adventure of following Jesus. You know, a few years ago, Cindy and I showed up. The church we'd been attending closed. And we were welcomed, and it's been a growing and stretching place for us ever since. 
And I'll say spiritual growth is good, but Clara would say it's always unto something, right? It's unto something more. So, Lord, let us grow any way you want us to grow, whether that's welcoming in people that just have been hurt or haven't fit somewhere else. But if you just think about the church of Jesus across the world, right? Think about church in the macro sense. You know, it, it isn't really growing when people who are already followers of Jesus just go from one place to another place, right? That's not growth. There's growth that happens. I'm not saying that, and I'm not discounting that, but I'm saying the church isn't growing unless people are coming to faith, unless people are coming to follow Jesus. And this is what our growth, our spiritual growth, is unto. And that's what the early church experienced, and it's what we should be desiring as well. And so... What I'd say is the church today needs to capably represent Jesus to those who have not yet found him to be the greatest gift by living like Jesus here in this world. That's what we're supposed to live like, like Jesus. I'm going to go a few more minutes. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up in a a family. My mom was married twice, and so I had two older half-siblings and a younger full brother. And... um, you know, typical suburban Northern California kind of life. My dad had a drinking problem, and uh, when I was a teenager, kind of going into my high school years, my older half-brother, half-sister, as soon as they could kind of get out of the house, they were gone. And so my younger brother and I grew up as teens with uh, my dad drinking. He wasn't so much like an angry drunk. He was just an unreliable guy. He'd promise this and then wouldn't deliver. And my mom was just becoming bitter by it. So I had these parents that would fight, and then Dad wouldn't show up, and that was kind of what life was like. When I started high school, public school, um, I took a freshman science class, and I met a teacher, Mr. Schaefer, and seemed like a nice guy. And a couple years later, when I took chemistry, I took chemistry from Mr. Schaefer, and I took photography from Mr. Schaefer, and we went on a trip to Death Valley, and You know, I spent a lot of time interacting with him. And by the time I was a senior, um, I tutored chemistry for him and I took physics from him. And we sort of had a relationship. And he, um, this is a public school, he invited me one day, just asked me, was I interested in looking at the Bible? And I have no idea why, but I said yes. You know, I said, sure. My parents were divorcing, right? My family was falling apart. Um, and this guy said, do you want to look at the Bible? So we went through this, I think it was this Navigators, these little booklets called Design for Discipleship. And it was like, look up a scripture and answer a question and fill in the blank, right? You know, you think, crazy, that doesn't work. That's ridiculous. But for me, I was soaking it up. And in the course of doing that, at some point, the Holy Spirit put his finger on my heart. And I had this keen sense that, you know, there's a possibility that I could be separated from God forever. And I didn't want it. I did not want to be separated from God. It wasn't so much that, oh, Jesus is so loving, he's so wonderful, I want that. It was that I was afraid of hell. And looking back on it, I didn't understand it at the time. That was the Spirit of God putting his finger on me, convicting me of the coming judgment, right? And turning me towards God. You know, I decided to follow Jesus. 
first time I went to church, I think it was an evangelical free church, I met Cindy through a mutual friend. And then later when I you know, started going to church more regularly, we ended up going to his church. And, you know, it was a little distance away from where I lived, but we would go to church on Sunday. And Chuck, Mr. Schaefer, and his wife and their two little kids invited us to their house after church. Every Sunday, I went to their house. And we did this really weird thing. We sat around a table, and we ate food, and we talked. And it was like something I'd never seen before, right? And we watched them raise their kids, and we watched how they interacted, and we, we learned just by observing them and by having them. And I tell you, when I look back, I was goofy as all get out. I had some goofy ideas. But they were just gracious, right? They were just not worried about those goofy things. They weren't always correcting. They were letting you kind of hang with your stupid ideas until you sort of figured it out that that was a dumb idea, right? So I became a follower of Jesus through my high school science teacher. And, you know, a few years later, my mom became a follower of Jesus, and my older half-sister became a follower of Jesus, and my older half-brother became a follower of Jesus. And a few years after that, my mom and dad got back together after they had divorced. My dad was still drinking, but somehow that was working. And uh, my younger brother became a follower of Jesus. And my dad, at age 80, became a follower of Jesus. Now, it took one person taking an interest in me and being willing, right, to extend a public school teacher Maybe it was easier in those days, but I'm sure there was some risk to him to do that so that the Spirit could work in me. That's how it works, right? That's how it's supposed to be with us. So it's my hope that our little part of the body is going to strongly desire to see increase, and especially we're going to desire to see people coming to know him because it's the greatest thing. So what I want to conclude with is if that's something that you can agree with, then I would like you to stand if, you're, if you agree with it. Not that I'm not asking you to stand if, you, if this doesn't mean anything, but stand if, as a, just as a sign of um, response to God, and I want to pray for us as we conclude this part of the service. And maybe just be thinking about people that you know that don't know Jesus, that you care about. So dear loving Father, I want to first of all thank you for your life-giving word and thank you for the merciful gift of Jesus to all of us so that our sins could be forgiven and our lives restored in right relationship with you. And thank you for the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds so that we can understand the truth and follow it. I pray for all of us standing now who felt the nudge of your Holy Spirit to be good news people to represent Jesus well in this sad, lost world. Lord, we want to be thoroughly sold out to you, completely surrendered to your will being done in and through our lives. Increase our love for lost people, our longing for the salvation of others, and give us the very heart of Jesus, the heart that loved us first and sought us out and drew us back home to you. Flood our hearts with light, so that we know you truly, we understand and obey your word. And Lord, help us to be people of prayer, interceding for the lost, 
and seeking the direction of your spirit to be led to the right people, to know what to say, and to have your power in us when we say it. And Holy Spirit, please fill us with your life-giving presence, the very presence of the living God indwelling us. As you came upon the early church on the day of Pentecost, I pray that you would come upon us now, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us. And send us out into the world in which we live with your power to convict and convince. For we only want to do your will, to be faithful to you and to your saving work in the hearts of precious lost ones. Thank you for the awesome privilege of knowing Jesus and of representing him to all those you would bring our way as you seek and save those who are lost through the church, your body, the fullness of him who fills everything everywhere. Amen. If there's something that you would like prayer for, we are a church that likes to pray for you. So there will be people up front. Feel free to come forward. If there's something about the message that I just gave that you want to talk about, I'll be here. You're welcome to come forward and ask me anything about it. Tell me where I maybe was off track. But, you know, what I would say is as you go out today, I hope you go out with a different idea and a different set of eyes as you look at the world and you see the sadness of it and the lostness of it rather than the annoyance of it and the how it's all just going to H in a handbasket, right? You can have that kind of view and just have that negative outlook or you can say God is on the move. And he is empowering us to be his representatives. And he absolutely wants to do it in us and through us. We just have to be willing. Just be willing. And he will do it. He will do it. So, Amen.